Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Morning, welcome back to Weekend Morning, Saturday morning here on Money FM 89.3. Time now for our international news review. Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor at McClarty Associates, joining us to talk about the State of the Union address that happened this week in the U.S. Good morning, Steve. The State of the Union is strong. That is what Joe Biden said. <laughs> they, you know, every president, I, I would like to see how many presidents have actually not said that, right? Exactly. Just about everyone starts with that. Um, Gerald so, Ford after Watergate oh. was the only one who said it was. <laughs> there you go. So was is it strong? And what was the case that Joe Biden made uh, for that statement? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the thing that stuck out with me, and I'm sure it stuck out with, with Neil especially, is that you had a room of septuagenarians no masks, mm. no masks at all. Mm. It was amazing to see. And just to tie this into International Women's Day, for the first time in history, you had two women behind the president as he gave uh, the State of the Union. And so, um, you and know, explain, a lot of, explain a lot of who they are, today. Steve. Explain who they are. Well, for our of course, audience. you had the, the vice president, at, who is the the uh, president of the Senate, in, is one of her titles, and then the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. So, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, two women behind the president. I'm sure one day we'll see uh, a woman give the the State of the Union in, in the not too far distant distant future. Uh, look, look. To be honest, though, these speeches just they're not that important, right? I mean, the 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 average. Um, approval rating bump a president gets out of the State of the Union is zero. Mm. Right? I, I, I do TV off of these for, for, for you know, 10 years or more. I watch them closely. I study them. I struggle to remember any that Donald Trump gave. I mean, the only two things that stand out for me out of any of his State of the Unions was Nancy Pelosi ripping up the speech <laughs> in, in disgust at the end of one. Um, and him awarding the, Congress, the the Presidential Medal of Freedom to, to Rush Limbaugh. Um, so, <laughs> you look... It was okay. Um, I think that the, the biggest line that, that might be remembered is Joe Biden saying that we need to fund the police. You know, there's this defund the police movement, certainly in, in the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He went against that wing saying we need to fund the police. We need to improve uh, policing. We need to improve the the safety in 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 reduced crime in the country i think from a domestically that may be what gets remembered most steve i've been reading several pieces that have made the illusion that it's the speech was very typical of biden's first year in office quite meandering short on substantive policy you know because it represents the year he's had you know he 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 swept in on that build back better plan he was going to have a sweeping economic agenda domestically hasn't quite happened didn't get the votes required interestingly he didn't mention the word abortion once i know you study it closely he played around that word because of what's happening in texas it's such a precarious position for him domestically steve he literally cannot even utter the word abortion talk about sanctions in ukraine so in other words very meandering touching on various issues, but nothing really concrete. A fair reflection of his first year? Well, I mean, that's kind of the challenge he has because he's fighting a three-front war, right? He's still fighting COVID, um, and, and he's still got the economic crisis. So he had to talk about inflation. He did talk about inflation. He talked about what he wanted to do to bring inflation down, but what can a president really do to bring inflation down in a, in a short period of time? And I think the most important part of the speech, and if there is something that will be remembered, it will be the unity that Democrats and Republicans had about Ukraine, about, you know, Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin's, you know, choice of war, 
the aggression and the killing that is going on and that that standing ovation for the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States from Democrats and Republicans, a sustained one, it shows the world that the United States is united, that for one of the few times we've had, partisan politics does end uh, at the shore. Uh, you, you have now, you know, even Mike Pence came out after the speech and said there is no room in the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. Uh, for Putin. That goes against Trump. That goes against people like Tucker yeah. Carlson. So it yeah. is an important speech, even though... Neil, you're right. It's always a laundry list. What are you going to be able to say in 62 minutes, right? Well, Steve, you are the master of segue uh, at this particular moment in time because we are going to go from the State of the Union to talk about Ukraine. And for that, we are going to bring on our good friend, uh, uh, intelligence analyst Lily Ong, uh, to dig a little deeper on this. Lily, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm a good friend now. You've always been a good friend. Always you know a good friend of our show, you know Lily. Especially when you come on Saturday mornings and speak so authoritatively <laughs> about what's happening in Russia. So let's kick off with that, Lily. You were in that part of the world uh, around the Christmas period. Give us your take, your insight into what's happening within the borders of Russia because there's been pretty much a media shutdown in the last few days to the outside world. There's nothing going on in Russia. Let's talk about Ukraine. You know, let me let me state on the onset. There are things I can talk about and there are things that I cannot comment on. I think nobody can look at what's happening in Ukraine and not feel a tinge of sadness. Mm. And I'm feeling more than sadness. I'm furiously mad. I'm furiously mad because what's happening in Ukraine could have been prevented. But steps that could have prevented it were clearly not made. So I think if we were to look at Ukraine and just put the blame squarely on Russia, we're missing the bigger picture. We are missing the bigger lesson. So let's take a look at history uh, so that we can scrutinize the, the whole piece of what's happening here. Now, in 1999, I'm sorry, in, in 1990, around the end of the Cold War, then Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of State James Baker, he told Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch eastwards. And those were his words. All right. And Gorbachev took him at, at his words. 1999, under the presidency of Clinton. Hey, Steve, you were working for him, weren't you? I was. Yeah. But, but you're, the, you're in DOT. You're the transport guy. I, I will, uh, I'll let you off the hook. <laughs> so in 1999, NATO took on Poland. It took on Czech, it took on Hungary, and in 2000, Putin, um, Clinton went to speak to Putin, and Putin asked him, you know, is there a possibility to admit Russia into NATO? And we could see Clinton's response in what happened afterwards. NATO went on a very aggressive expansion. In 2004, it took on Bulgaria, it took on Estonia, it took on Latvia, it took on Lithuania, it took on Slovenia, Slovakia, and Romania. And then in 2009, it took on Albania and Croatia, 2017, Montenegro, and 2020, North Macedonia. So instead of not inching one inch eastward, NATO went leaping eastward. Steve, do you want to comment on that one? Sure. And, and look, it's not that NATO forced these countries to come and join the, the security alliance. They wanted to join the security alliance because they don't trust the, the dictatorship that we basically now have in Russia. This was not 
some Western plot. The Ukrainians have decided that they wanted to pursue democracy. They wanted to pursue a more open economy. And, and this is something that they have chosen to do because they feel it is in their best interest. And so to blame that the blame anyone other than Vladimir Putin for choosing to go to war to basically we've all woken up and all of a sudden it's 1939. I mean, what happened? Um, where what, what happened in the in the last, you know, 70 plus years? And so that's where we have got. And, and look, if you want to blame the United States for anything, you can blame the United States because it has shown weakness um, when Putin has taken those very aggressive stands in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Syria. And he's now read that he could go into Ukraine and not have to pay this price. And he and the Russian people right now are paying a greater price than they've ever paid before. And unfortunately, we still don't know how all of this is going to turn out. Lily, just a fascinating insight, but just to follow up on that, of course we have to learn our lessons from history, but at some point there are parallels with World War II. Of course Neville Chamberlain should not have appeased Hitler. Of course he should have been allowed to remilitarize the Rhineland. Of course we sh- they should have been stopped before he invaded Poland. But the reason World War II happened ultimately is because of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> it's not because of the treaties or the Treaty of Versailles or the fallout of World War I. These are all stumbling blocks along the way, but Adolf Hitler was the lit the fuse for World War II, and Vladimir Putin made the decision, ultimately, to invade the Ukraine. No? You know, uh, let's not forget who defeated Hitler. Let's not forget who defeated the Nazi army. I mean, I, I went to school mostly in Singapore and in the United States. Whenever we talked about World War II, nobody, nobody ever mentioned the 27 million Russians who sacrificed their lives to defeat the Nazi. It was always about the American heroes who dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, I'm not saying that did not happen. That did happen. But then we have to look at the larger piece of history, don't we? Uh, good, good point. We're talking yeah. with uh, Lily Ong, uh, strategist, and also Steve Oaken from McClarty Associates on uh, International News Review, if you've just joined us. And um, uh, Lily, when we get back to the mindset of Putin, you know, a lot has been said. The, the points you've just mentioned, and I know you're not arguing for those points, you're just bringing them up as rationale. Um, but I think you know, the Russian people are now seeing that the international community uh, is not only united and getting more united by the day, but uh, resolutely disagrees with this notion that the special military operation is going on is going to liberate uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. I mean, people just don't see it that way. And, and they're finding out now, you know, that it's you know, what Vladimir Putin has sold them is not necessarily, uh, well, is definitely not what the rest of the world is thinking. So where, where's, where, where do we go from here? Where does Vladimir Putin go from here? Where are his exit, where, what could his exit strategy possibly be? Uh, if you were to look in a crystal ball based on what you know about his mindset and, and where the Russians are right now. Well, we don't have to sit here and speculate what Putin is thinking. He told us what he's going to do. Yeah. You know, if he doesn't get his three terms match um, in the draft treaty that he sent to the United States in December 2021, he's going to do two things, right? He's going to go into Ukraine. He's going to demilitarize Ukraine and he's going to denazify Ukraine. I do not believe he will stop until he has achieved those aims. Mm. So, but that raises the assumption that, that the Ukraine is somehow Nazified. <laughs> And needs denazifying. 
Uh, there's no evidence. There's simply no evidence of this, Lily. I mean, as we sit here now, I think 1.5 million uh, Ukrainian refugees have had to leave their country for for fear of death. It's it's triggered an international humanitarian crisis. It's united the world in no way, arguably, since World War Two. It's brought both sides of the political spectrum in America together. It's united Europe and Britain in a way that would have been unthinkable just a year ago, post Brexit. So the world seems to be standing on the side of the Ukraine here as we watch a humanitarian crisis. Well, and Neil, and just one other point. Why is it the United States' position to tell Ukraine that you must be neutral? Yeah. That, that is, why should the EU say to Ukraine, you must be neutral? That is something for the Ukrainian people to decide. And, and the Ukrainian people can come to some agreement, and they're certainly negotiating with with. with Russia right now to try to come to some agreement so that there can be some peace in Ukraine and that and that Russia will stop what is now, you know, certainly arguably war crimes that are, are, are occurring uh, in that country. And so that's for the Ukrainian people to decide. That is not for the United States to sign some treaty with Russia or the EU or the UK to say, Ukraine, you must now be neutral. You must be you must be Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Lily. I'm sorry. Sure. If I can just take on uh, Steve, what he said first, because this is an important piece that everybody is missing. You know, the Nazi threat, I'm not Steve, I'm Neil. The Nazi threat is very real. It's very real. Putin is onto something. Ukraine, not just Ukraine, but Russia, they have emerged as hubs for a broader network of transnational white supremacist movement. But because they operate mostly under the radar, people don't think about them. People have forgotten about them. And to add on to that, this call from Zelensky for foreign fighters to come to Ukraine is fight, that is very dangerous. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that goes to Ukraine to fight is a Nazi, but when this group goes out there and come home and return with their indoctrination of more ideological um, uh, more, more radicalized ideologies, they're going to infect those around them. This is a very dangerous movement that's going on right now. So Putin is onto something. The Nazi threat has never gone away. Well, sure. The Nazi threat has been all throughout Europe and, and, and America. And persists today, by the way. There's <laughs> a neo-Nazi element yeah. in Germany, but no one's invading <laughs> Germany. There's a neo-Nazi element in the US. No one's invading the US. Yeah. There's a neo-Nazi element within the UK, within parts of South America, within in parts of Italy. There's a neo-Nazi element in many sovereign nations around the world, but they're not being invaded, Lily. Neil, 17,000 17,000 foreign fighters went to the Donbass and they came from 50 countries. We are just not aware of who's going, but your country, UK, they have... I live in Singapore. I live in Singapore. (laughs) (laughs) you, You just take whatever nationality is convenient to you. But they have started implementing checks because they're afraid of these Nazi groups going over to fight in Ukraine. So your country is aware of what's going on too. Yeah, I mean, the idea of foreign fighters going into, you know, mercenaries yeah, to mercenaries go in and fight is not, certainly nothing new. Uh, but I, I don't think that we have, you know, is there hard evidence that they are actually, you know, actually Nazis? And, uh, you know, there's a lot to unpack with that one. But sorry, yeah, well, Steve, I just, go ahead. I would just make yep. two quick points. One, President Zelensky is Jewish. Oh. Two, <laughs> China is basically makes the same argument about Xinjiang. And, 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 and its treatment of, of, of the Uyghurs is, is terrorists there. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this conversation so perfectly encapsulates the, the amazing difficulty of this 
uh, of this moment that we are in. Uh, and there, there is so much, you know, the, the old saying, the, the, first, um, the first victim of war is the truth, right? And, you know, what is the truth? Each side is fighting its own truth and, and fighting for its own truth. Uh, and, and I think it is, is very interesting to see uh, not only the, the Russian side of this, uh, that, that we all have been hearing now for weeks, but to try to demystify what some of that means. I think at the end of the day, the reality on the ground is, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, both Russians, fighters and Ukrainians are dying. Millions are being displaced for something that was a decision, I think, on Vladimir Putin's side. Uh, Lily, correct me if I'm wrong, that, he, you know, was there another way to achieve his goal? You know, I, I don't mind us wagging our fingers and shaking our heads at Russia. Um, you know, the violence cannot be justified. All I'm asking is, if we're going to pretend to be this uh, moral crusaders of a higher ground, let's at least try to be consistent. Yeah. Let's not forget what happened in Iraq. All right. U.S. thought there were weapons Absolutely. of mass destruction. Absolutely. They invaded Iraq. Not a single shred of WMD was found, but yep. half a million, Glenn, half a million Iraqis, died in that process attributed to direct violence Hmm. so we need to again look at the bigger picture the bigger piece and not just be selective and and, and tens of millions of of americans protested against that action way before it even happened and then after it happened as well Hmm. so believe me i i get it i'm i'm and putin's even mentioned that as well other countries can invade countries why can't we i still don't think that's a justification uh for the u.s or for the russia or for anybody to do it um uh, especially as we hope to move in the year 2022 to a higher level of of human of humanity uh, and figuring out who we are as a as a race, um, uh, so I, I, I get your point. Um, but looking ahead, know. I mean, I mean, our job is not to wake figures anyway. Our job is just to report the news as it is now. You know, which is what we're doing as it is now. And as it is now, the Ukrainian president is calling for you know a no-fly zone to be implemented um, for obvious NATO reasons. That's unlikely to happen. So we do have this kind of stalemate. Question to both of you, really. What happens now? Start with Steve and then go to Lily. Or what would you hope would happen now, Steve? Well, I mean, this is a pivotal moment in the history of the 21st century. Um, It is not only going to affect what happens in Ukraine and and what happens in NATO, but it's going to really affect what happens in, in Asia. And if you see China and Russia come together, and it's unclear if, if that is going to happen because China is stepping away from some of what it said uh, because of, of the action the Russians have been taking. But if you see China and Russia come together, are you then going to see a fusing of the security alliances between Europe and Asia? And if that occurs, then it is going to be a much different 21st century than, than we had anticipated. So you've got the, the geostrategic, you've got big implications in Asia. And then the question is, look, this is not going to end well for Russia. Uh, it, is, it is either going to end in, in a couple of different ways. One is they're going to be bogged down in Ukraine, and this is going to take years, and they are going to be paying a heavy price because the resistance is never going to stop there. Or is this going to lead Russia to pull back? And then what is that going to, to mean for, for Russia as it interacts with the EU? And you now have countries, and, and Lily was talking about NATO's you know, March to the East, Moldova wants to be in, in, in NATO now. Georgia wants to be in NATO now. The, Finland and in, in, in Sweden want to be, potentially be in NATO now. 
So this is just going to have such implications that we can't even really begin to think about. Yeah, Lily, uh, the, we gotta we gotta go. But the last word to you: where we go forward from okay, here? Okay, I I agree uh, very quickly. I agree with Steve that this is going to be evolving into a larger geopolitical game, and it's very dangerous because if Iran, China. Russia, Pakistan, all these nuclear power. Oh, and North Korea, if they come together, I mean, we are facing a formidable force. And and you asked me what I hope will happen. Um, I hope Zelensky will take away his earpiece and just go into a quiet room and get down on his knees and pray. And I, I hope the same thing for Putin. He doesn't have a earpiece. He's already in a quiet room, but he needs to go, go in there and get down on his knees and pray. And while we're all trying to speculate what's going to happen, you know, everything that's happening, whether it's the war, the, the pandemic, it's, it's all can be found in a book that's written 3,400 years ago. So that's where we can look to see what's going to happen next. All right. Lily Ong, thank you so much. Steve Oaken for our International News Review today. We'll be keeping an eye on the story, as always. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lily. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.